Hubhopper Originals. To start your podcast for free, log on to studio.hubhopper.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Indian Genes. Do we have free will? And the conversation today is with a very special person. He is also the past director of the Philosophy and Science of Self-Control Project 2014 to 2017 and the Big Questions in Free Will Project 2010 to 2013. He has attended Wayne State University and received his doctorate in philosophy from the University of Michigan. He has taught at the Davidson College from 1979 until 2000. Then he took up his present position at the Florida State University. He also has argued that claims that scientists have proved that free will is an illusion are not credible and is known for his development of a casual theory of how intentional actions are produced and for his deflanatory view of self-deception. So this conversation is one you do not want to miss as free will or the illusion of free will is something we go through every day as we go through life. And I now present a very special guest talking exclusively to Indian genes, Alfred Mealy. So Al, it's great to have you here on Indian Genes and thank you so much for deciding to come on and speak to us. This is your decision and I'm sure you've made it out of free will if that is the right thing to say right at the top of this episode. But thank you so much for being here, Al. It's my pleasure. Before we start, we have been getting a lot of feedback uh, through our previous episodes because we've been speaking about science and we've been speaking about space or we've been talking about various other aspects related to other fields in science but there has been a lot of uh, request to talk about free will because this is a subject that is so close to everybody in the sense that everybody experiences it but at the moment we are also finding it difficult to label it try to understand what is the latest as far as research out there is concerned and i know this has been going on for years but to start with you al how would you define free will and is that how you would want to start or would you want to tell us a little bit about probably aristotle and i and i know that you did study and research and write a lot about him and lead us into the concept of free will whichever way you would want to take this al uh let's start with uh, free will straight away so one thing that philosophers argue about is exactly what the expression free will means. <laughs> so that's a debate already. I can't just give you a definition of free will and say that's how we all understand it. But what I can do is give you two different sets of sufficient conditions for free will. And uh, maybe you'll like one or the other. I myself am neutral on these two. They're, uh, they're both sets of conditions that I've put out there for people to examine. So here's the first one. It's pretty modest. And since you mentioned decision, let's make it uh, freely deciding to do something or deciding to do it of your own free will. <clears throat> Sufficient for that on this first conception is that you're sane and rational, uncompelled, uncoerced, uh, and you make a reasonable decision on the basis of good information. Uh, according to this conception of free will, that's enough. If you uh, satisfy that condition, you have made your decision of your own free will. But some philosophers say that isn't enough. It also needs to be true that under the very same conditions that you made your decision in, you could have made a different decision. So what they would do then is add to the conditions I already gave you another one and make this additional condition a necessary condition that you could have done otherwise than make the decision you made at that very time. And it's important to get clear on what they mean by could have done otherwise. <clears throat> so the thought is, here's one way to think about it. This is probably the easiest way. Suppose you make your decision. It's a decision to have, I don't know, a, a cheese sandwich uh, for lunch. And you make it at noon. If that decision is going to be a free one, these philosophers would say, 
would have to be the case that if you could roll back <clears throat> time, say roll it back 10 minutes, and then play it forward, and nothing would change until the moment at which you make your decision. And under this condition, you make a different decision. You decide to have uh, a tuna fish sandwich for lunch. <clears throat> um, and what you need in order for that to be true is that the brain operates in what we call an indeterministic way, that the laws that govern uh, brain activity are probabilistic and leave room for alternative decisions at the same moment. Is that clear or do you, do you have questions about it? That That is clear, yes. And I just wanted to check with you, which part of this would you define as compatibilism or incompatibilism? The second good. one? That, that is good. So that first uh, set of conditions is a compatibilist condition. Um, and what it means to say that it's compatibilist is you can satisfy that condition in a universe in which determinism is true. And determinism, as we tend to understand it in the free will literature, is the idea that a complete list of the laws of nature and a complete description of the universe at any point in time logically entails all other truths about the universe. <clears throat> so if a universe was deterministic and you rolled back time in the way I described and then rolled it forward, in every replay, as it were, exactly the same thing would happen because what happens is determined by the past of that universe together with its laws of nature. <clears throat> so that first conception is compatibilist in that sense, and the second one is incompatibilist. And incompatibilism is the idea that determinism, as I defined it, is not compatible with free will, so that in any universe in which determinism is true, nobody has free will. As far as determinism is concerned, when we do talk about it, then we need to take the we need to take every reality into play here, right? You would say that from the time the universe was created, or the universe always existed, whichever way it could be, up to the past as well. So you're not only talking about the moment a decision is made as far as compatibilism and non-compatibilism is concerned. There is some split somewhere once that decision has to be made. And then you're talking probably about choice or chance, or does that come in? Or in this particular universe, or in this particular circumstance under determinism, these are my two options. Uh, under determinism, there's really only one way the universe can go at any point in time. So there's only one decision you can make at any point in time. But if determinism, even if determinism is true, you don't know what the laws in the past entail about what you'll do. So as far, as far as you know, it's open. But if the universe is deterministic, no, there's only one way things can go. If the universe is indeterministic, things can go in different ways at the same time. There are possibilities that are consistent with the past and the laws. And that's a requirement that incompatibilists make uh, for free will. Mm, that's interesting. And does that then go into some form of libertarianism? Yeah. So libertarianism is, the, is a combination of theses. One, incompatibilism is true. And two, uh, people sometimes act freely. So libertarians are incompatibilists who believe in free will. My first thought then would be, as, as far as in a deterministic universe, it's pretty clear that the particular agent or individual needs to have the information or not have the information, and there's very little the person can do. But from the agent's point of view, that is a decision that is absolutely based out of free will. Now, when you come to a libertarian view, and you spoke about non-deterministic universe or, or, or bringing chance into play, does this person then have to step out of, in some way, 
the physical laws of nature because if we are all bound by that or is there a need for some other entity to influence that decision so that it becomes uh, it it becomes easier let's use that word to make sense of it i see um there are different kinds of libertarian view and uh i will describe them in a minute i want to go back to compatibilism just for a minute so the uh, traditional compatibilist says even if determinism is true you could have done otherwise but this isn't being able to do otherwise in that sense that i described earlier where you could roll back time roll it forward and this time you do something else rather the compatibilist is saying you could have done otherwise in the sense that if things had been different you would or might have done otherwise for example if your reasons had been different or if you'd had different incentives uh you might have done otherwise so it's a kind of ability to do otherwise that doesn't involve holding fixed uh the past and the laws i just wanted to make that clear <clears throat> and there's also a kind of compatibilism that says you don't need to be able to do otherwise in any sense really in order to act freely and maybe we can talk about that one later now about your question about uh, libertarianism so there are different kinds of libertarians there are libertarians who think that you do need some kind of freedom uh, from the laws of nature in order to act uh, freely uh, i myself don't find that kind of libertarianism attractive um and i should say that i'm neither a compatibilist nor an incompatibilist i've always just stayed on the fence on that issue and tried to help out people in developing positive compatibilist views and positive libertarian views and if i were a libertarian the kind of libertarian view that i would favor uh, doesn't involve any ability to um break laws of nature or not be bound by them uh doesn't require souls or anything non-physical um all it really requires is indeterministic causation in cases that satisfy that set of sufficient conditions that i gave earlier so i should explain that because now we're building up piece by piece but so that second set of conditions was this if you're sane and rational uncompelled uncoerced and make a reasonable decision on the basis of good information uh and you could have done otherwise than make the decision you made in the sense that i explained earlier then you make your decision of your own free will so all you really need there are the things i identified and uh, indeterministic causation by um mental states or their neural realizers the, the brain states that realize the mental states mm your past experiences when you spoke about better reasoning or a judgment let's use that word my 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 reasoning or my judgment could only be based on my past experiences rather than somebody else's past experiences because probably i would have a bias to what i've been through over a period of time in my life so in a way that is still controlled individually and can vary from person to person oh yes yes i mean i i think uh, the key to uh the solution to a problem about luck that is posed by this libertarian view does have to do with life experiences so maybe i should move on to that um so so we're thinking now we're in the libertarian camp and we're thinking of this kind of streamlined uh, libertarianism that i described and let's take a particular case where something hangs on it so um Let's suppose that this guy Joe is down on his luck and uh he's in a a saloon and he's complaining about his life and somebody offers to sell him a gun and says you know if you have this gun you can make some money in a hurry and Joe thinks about it you know should I buy this gun and and maybe use it or not 
And uh, <clears throat> let's say that in the actual indeterministic universe, he uh, decides to buy it. And in another indeterministic universe, where everything is the same right up until then, uh, he decides not to buy it. Now, other things will happen down the road with this gun, but this is a pretty momentous decision, it seems. And it can go either way, given the same past and the same laws of nature. So now it starts to look like partly a matter of luck that he decides as he decides, because after all, he could have decided differently under the same conditions. In another possible universe, he does. And so you might think that the indeterminism involved in this libertarian view actually gets in the way of free will, precludes it. Uh, and then you wonder, well, what should we say about that? Does this luck kill free will uh, or does it not? And I think the solution, and the solution is really a very long one, but the, uh, the general idea would be this. If we just focus on Joe at the moment of that decision, it might look like the probability that he'll make the decision he makes just comes out of the blue, that it has no cause, no history. But really, if you think about Joe over time, and trace back, you might be able to see things differently. And what this forces you to do, this tracing back, is to start thinking about a kid's first free decision, or the first decision for which a kid is morally responsible. Um, and one thing to think about then is at roughly what age <clears throat> this kind of thing might happen. At what age might a kid make his first free decision? And, uh, you know, that, that's a tough question. Maybe around five or six years old. Some people say a little earlier. Some people say a little later. Um, but what would be involved in making uh, a first free decision, a free decision of the kind that a kid could make? Well, probably something like this, that um, the kid is tempted to do something but he believes that he shouldn't. So from his parents, he's learned uh, that he shouldn't pull his sister's hair, but he enjoys pulling her hair because it makes, it, makes her scream and he likes to hear her scream. Um, so here he is and he's thinking about what to do. Usually he just does whatever comes to mind, but this time he's thinking about it. And he's thinking, shall I pull her hair or not? Um, and he decides not to. But under the same conditions, he could have decided to pull her hair. So the luck is involved. But does the luck preclude uh, freedom or moral responsibility? Well, let's, let's think about moral responsibility. Hmm. And if we do, it should strike us that this offense, you know, pulling the, the girl's hair, isn't that big a deal. And so maybe the bar, the threshold for moral responsibility, because the offense isn't such a big deal, is pretty low. And maybe low enough that we think the kid can get there. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that kids that age have all sorts of problems relative to adults. They don't have the impulse control that adults have, or even that, say, 10-year-olds have. Uh, they can't anticipate the consequences of their behavior as well as we can, or even as well as 10-year-olds can, and so on. So we could just add luck to this mix of problems that they have and ask, well, is that going to prevent them from being morally responsible? And what we might think is, no, they can be morally responsible. And if the kid makes the right decision and decides not to pull her hair, he deserves some moral credit for that. And then once we get a bit of responsibility in the picture, it can get amplified over time because people can, kids too, can learn from their successes and mistakes. They can learn that this kind of behavior just uh, isn't rewarding in the long run and that kind of behavior is. Um, and so by the time Joe makes his decision about the gun, he's 
engaged in lots of behavior that really fixes the antecedent probabilities of his deciding to buy it and of his deciding not to buy it. So those probabilities don't come out of the blue. It looks like he has some responsibility for them. And then we might think some responsibility for what he decides at the time, too. Well, it turned out to be a long answer anyway, but no, the, the written very interesting. answer. In, in fact, uh, it, it, was, it was a great, uh, uh, you, you got into something that has just thrown up a few more questions for me. And if we continue down this line, then, as you said, for this particular kid or in this particular scenario, then we do heavily have to rely on some kind of social psychology because you would want to then get into it. It could depend a kid in a different part of the world because what is a person's beliefs or morals or how does that person come up in one part of the world as compared to another part of the world? And then is there one uh, one benchmark or guideline that when we get into morals could be a little bit of a problem or do you see that as a problem at all? No, I understand. Um, I agree. I think cross-cultural studies of thinking about free will or free will itself are really interesting and important. One thing I did um, years ago is I uh, directed a, a big grant project, an interdisciplinary one on uh, free will. And we had uh, neuroscientists, social psychologists, cognitive psychologists, developmental psychologists, and uh, philosophers working on these projects. And one of the outputs of it was uh, an edited volume entitled Surrounding Free Will. And the idea of that volume, I'm the editor of it, was to uh, attack the free will issue from all these different dimensions, neuroscience, social psychology, developmental psychology, etc. And um, so I agree that this is the right approach to take. But is there a common element in this question about the first uh, free action or the first action for which a kid is morally responsible? And I think there is. It's um, that the kid sees that he or she has different options at a time and has some kind of feeling or sense that it's up to him or her which thing he or she does. So, you know, beliefs about morality are different across cultures and so on. But this general kind of schema that I just gave you is uh, neutral on moral beliefs. It's really a matter of thinking, hey, I can go this way or that way, and it's up to me which way I go. And um, if it's moral responsibility, then the decisions in question should have some moral significance. So not, you know, cheese sandwich versus tuna sandwich. Right. Well, except in places where people think it's wrong to eat fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, but these nuances come into play if we stick on to uh, uh, come into play a little bit more. And we seem to be able to have some control over it over a period of time if we stick on to the libertarian <clears throat> view of stuff as compared to determinism. Uh, in my opinion, I don't know if I've got that right. But because in, in a deterministic mindset, we get into or we can run into certain other problems when it comes down to, we were speaking about morality, but whether when it comes down to breaking of the law, for example, and that can be, and that can lead to dangerous consequences, because if determinism is taken literally, and too literally, uh, somewhere down the line, then nobody is in a position to judge anybody else. And everything just goes on, because that's the way it's supposed to go on. And I don't know if any of you in your fields or you have some uh, study to show that the moment people think differently, it, uh, if I think that, for example, what I'm trying to get at, if I think that it's deterministic, then why do I have to do anything and why do I have to regret my actions personally? And from another person's point of view, why should that person judge me? Because it, it was meant to be. Yeah, I see. That, that is a worry uh, some people have about compatibilism. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you didn't quite put it this way, but sometimes people say, 
well, look, if you believe that determinism is true, why do you bother thinking about what to do? Because you're going to do what you're going to do anyway. Mm. But uh, one thing, if determinism is true and you're thinking about what to do, it's determined that you're thinking about what to do. And another thing is you don't, even if determinism is true, you don't know what you're going to do. And, um, and you don't just predict what you'll do. In fact, you can't. You, you don't know enough to make the prediction. So it looks like you're going to need to figure out what to do, and then you can do it. Um, and all that is consistent with determinism. If our universe, suppose physicists discover in the end that determinism is true of our universe. We have still made all the decisions we ever made in, in our lives, many of them. Um, and there was a point in making them because we had to settle on what to do. Like uh, before COVID, I used to fly all over the world and give lectures. And I had to figure out how to get from point A to point B to point C. And I did. I spent a lot of time thinking about it, making plans, acting on the plans. And all of that is consistent with our actual universe being deterministic. Um, now, but again, you didn't put the worry quite that way. Sometimes people do. Sometimes people say, well, look, you don't deserve to be blamed for something you did unless you could have done otherwise. But if determinism is true, they say, you couldn't have done otherwise. Right. So you never deserve to be blamed for what you do if determinism is true. And that is pretty close to what you suggested. Um, this raises uh, an interesting philosophical question. And um, this is kind of, it's a, a crazy thought experiment, but it's an interesting one. And it's attracted a lot of attention for over 50 years. So it's named after Harry Frankfurt because he thought of this kind of thought experiment. Uh, so it's called these days a Frankfurt-style thought experiment. And what we're testing with the experiment that I'm about to give you is whether you need to be able to do otherwise than you did in order to be acting freely. And we'll uh, focus on decisions. So, so here it goes. There's this uh, guy named Harry. This isn't Frankfurt's own thought experiment. This is one of mine that's based on his. Um, there's this uh, guy named Harry who's got uh, special powers. And he would like this other guy named Bob to decide at noon today to steal my car. Um, and he would prefer that Bob decide that on his own. But if Bob doesn't decide it on his own, Harry will make him make that decision by screwing around with his brain. And what Harry does is to implant in Bob a certain neural process that's ticking away, and it's set to cause Bob to decide at noon to steal my car unless at noon Bob decides on his own to steal it. So this implanted process is ticking away, and Bob is thinking about whether to steal my car or not. He's a car thief. And uh, at noon, what happens is that Bob decides on his own to steal my car. Uh, so Harry's process didn't cause the decision. Bob made the decision on his own. and. We can say that Bob's thinking about what to do is an indeterministic process. And this indeterministic process results in a decision to steal my car. Um, so Bob couldn't have done otherwise at noon than decide to steal my car, because either he was going to do it on his own, that is, decide on his own to steal it, or he was going to decide to steal it because Harry's process made Bob decide to steal it. So he couldn't have done otherwise than decide to steal my car. But is he even so morally responsible for deciding to steal it? Now, to 
start thinking about how to answer that question. Stage one, imagine that you took Harry out of the thought experiment. You took his manipulation of Bob out. Uh, would Bob be morally responsible for deciding to steal my car? Well, he decided it on the basis of his indeterministic deliberation, so why not? He wasn't deterministically caused to decide to steal it. So if we take Harry out, it looks like Bob is morally responsible for deciding to steal the car. So put Harry back in. And we notice that he didn't cause Bob to make the decision he made. So why would putting Harry back in make any difference at all? And so it looks like um, Bob is morally responsible for deciding to steal my car. And would he be responsible for that if he didn't do it freely? Well, the answer seems to be no. So it looks like he freely stole my car, even though I freely decided to steal it, even though he couldn't have done otherwise than decide to steal it. And this is a reason that has been offered and taken very seriously for thinking that you can be morally responsible for doing something and do it freely, even if you couldn't have done otherwise. And then that would undermine that objection to compatibilism that set the stage for this thought experiment. Do you have any questions about that? Yes. Through that, if a person was given this example and asked, then by default, we would go back to what you said earlier, I guess, that irrespective of, in that case, irrespective of determinism or at some level libertarianism, if you had no information about the future, then whether you had information of the past or you lived in the past, it should not matter based on the decision you are going to make. Because once you make that decision, then you are accountable for it. And I just couldn't help thinking of Schroeder's, Schroeder's cat when you were talking about it because you are talking about physics earlier. So until you open that box, the cat is either alive or the cat is either dead. So And once it is, then that's a decision you have got to stick with, right? Yeah, once it is, uh, that is settled, right. So you open it and either it's alive or it's dead. <laughs> And once you make a decision, I mean, you've made it and there are consequences. And uh, some of those consequences might be that you deserve to be blamed and punished or rewarded if it's a good decision. A current understanding of a couple of other things that I just want to throw in here, if, if you want to go down that road, is a reality. And we would have to come down to consciousness somewhere because I think we started off really well as a framework and we've kept those two aspects out of it uh, up to now. So that would work really well. I mean, even if we had a technician or we had a programmer who was listening to us, we could then decide, especially when it comes to autonomous driving or cars or where the future is going, that this particular thought in this line is, I guess, what is going to be used and it works well. Now, when we throw in a couple of other aspects here as far as human beings are concerned, the, the the trouble is going to start when we come in with reality because a lot of people have different views on that and we can maybe try to touch on that and then consciousness because what aspect or how much does consciousness play into uh, decision making oh yeah that yeah that that's a very good question um and there's a lot of interesting neuroscientific work on that before i get into that which i will um let me say that one thing we could do with those two initial uh, sets of sufficient conditions for free will that I gave you is make it explicit that the decisions we're talking about are conscious decisions. Okay. Uh, and usually when philosophers talk about decisions, you know, they're assuming that the decisions are conscious. But there is um, some neuroscientific work that suggests that we make all of our decisions unconsciously, and then sometimes we become conscious of the decisions after we make them. Hmm. Um, I actually wrote, well, a ton of stuff about this, and um, I, should, I should talk about it. It's, it's interesting. So sure. let's do that. That'll be our, our way into uh, consciousness. So 
In the uh, early 1980s, a neurobiologist named uh, Benjamin Libet did studies that suggested to many of his readers that free will doesn't exist. Libet himself actually thought there was a little bit of space for a negative kind of free will, uh, an ability to veto urges we have, but uh, most people read it as strongly suggesting that there's no free will. Uh, so let me describe his experiment, and then we can look at some interpretations of it and what we should think about those interpretations. Mm, sure. All right. So the uh, subject's task was to flex their wrist whenever they felt like it. And then after they flex, they were supposed to report where the uh, hand was on a very fast clock. The clock made a complete revolution in about two and a half seconds. They're supposed to report where the hand was on this clock when they first became aware of their urge, intention, decision, wish, will uh, to flex now. So he used lots of different terms, which makes it kind of dicey to interpret. The subjects were connected to two different machines. One, EEG, measured changes in electrical conductivity on the scalp, and the other one measured the beginning of muscle motion in the wrist. And what Libet found is that when he regularly reminded the subjects or participants to be spontaneous, that is not to think in advance about when to flex, and when after the fact they said that they never did think in advance about when to flex. He got a ramp up in EEG activity a little more than half a second before muscle motion. So it was 550 milliseconds before muscle motion. But the average time of first reported awareness or consciousness of the intention, decision, wish, will, urge was about 200 milliseconds before muscle motion. Mm. What Libet said is, well, when that ramp-up starts, that's when the decision is made, the decision to flex now, and the person doesn't become conscious of that decision for another third of a second or so. Okay, so that's the setup. That's the conclusion he drew. Now, suppose you think that in order for a decision to be free or freely made, it has to be consciously made. Well, Libet says that in this experimental setting, the decisions are not consciously made. So it would follow from that, that they're not freely made. And he generalizes from what he seems to find in this case to all decisions. So the claim then is all decisions, well, let's put it this way, no decision is consciously made. And if that's true, and if a decision needs to be consciously made in order to be free, you get the result that we never decide freely, never decide of our own free will. And that would pretty much kill free will. Again, Libet thought that once we became aware of the urge or whatever, we could veto it. So there's a little negative room for free will, but that was it. Um, if that's clear, I'll go on. If you have any questions about it, uh, let me know. That's clear, but just one question. Okay. So when you said that, to, to, to summarize it, the reaction of the reading from the scalp always came before any reaction in the wrist by either 200 or 550 milliseconds in both instances, right? 550 milliseconds before muscle motion. Correct. On okay. average. Yeah. And the average time of first reported awareness of the urge or decision or intention was 200 milliseconds before muscle motion. So there was about a third of a second between EEG ramp up, when it started to ramp up, and uh, the uh, awareness report. Right. So, he, you know, so he says, well, then you make your decision when the ramp up starts. And so you make it 
350 milliseconds before you're aware of it. Uh, so you make it unconsciously. So, you know, one thing you'd want to ask when you hear this line of reasoning is, why should we think that when the EEG starts ramping up, that's where the decision is made? Mm, exactly. why, why shouldn't we think that, well, maybe a process is up and running then, starts ramping up, and the decision is made later, maybe around 200 milliseconds before muscle motion. So what you'd want to do is get independent evidence, if you could, about how long it takes a decision to do something right then to generate muscle motion. Um, so you might think of a decision to flex your wrist as a little uh, internal action of forming an intention to flex it. So if we could get evidence about how long it takes an intention to flex your wrist to generate muscle motion, uh, that would help. And you can get indirect evidence about that with reaction time uh, studies on a certain assumption. But I'll explain this. It's a little bit complicated. So in, um, in go signal reaction time tests, what you do is you instruct the subjects to do a certain action whenever they detect uh, the go signal. And so the signal could be uh, a flash of a light or a tone. And then what they're supposed to do is when they see the flash or when they hear the tone, let's say, they should click a mouse button or they should uh, flex a wrist. And in studies like this, average, reactive uh, average reaction time is about 200 milliseconds. So between the sound and the muscle motion, it's about 200 milliseconds on average. So why shouldn't we think that in Libet's studies, you get a pre-decisional sort of uh, process associated with the beginning of the ramp up and the decision isn't made until about the time people think they make it. That is, it isn't made until consciousness time. Um, there are other ways to get evidence about this. I, I wrote a book that has several chapters on the Libet stuff. Uh, effective Intentions. It was published in 2009. And one thing I suggested is that we could get evidence about when the decision is made, if it is made at all, in the Libet scenario, if we did a kind of reaction time test that had a signal that meant make your decision now. So instead of the signal being associated with a particular overt action, it was associated with making a decision one way or the other. Like, make your decision now about which button to press, the left one or the right one. Um, not long after, in fact, a year later, uh, such a study was done. Uh, and it was a very interesting study. And subjects were supposed to make a decision about which hand to move when they got the decide signal. <coughs> And the average time between the decide signal and muscle motion was around 150 milliseconds. So if what's going on is the participants hear the decide signal, they make a decision in response to it, and then they act on that decision, the time between decision or intention and muscle motion is about 150 milliseconds, which puts it in that consciousness time right around 200 milliseconds. So there are good reasons to doubt that decisions are made as early as Libet says they are uh, in his work. And that threat or challenge to free will, I think, goes away. Um, okay, that's about the Libet stuff. Um, there is subsequent neuroscientific work using different technologies, but this basic problem that I just sketched applies to them, too. But there's more to be said about this. And now we can get a little more philosophical. Um, so what role does consciousness play in free decision-making? What Libet is looking at is your subjective timing 
of when you make your decision. So the question for the participants is, hey, when did you make that decision? And that's never what we're thinking about when we make ordinary decisions. We're thinking about the decision problem and how to resolve it. And we're not asking ourselves, hey, at what moment did I make that decision? We're asking ourselves, what should we do? Or what would it be best to do? Or what shall we do? Um, so I was just looking at an interview I did with um, the Closer to Truth uh, TV people because somebody emailed me and asked me what I said there and I couldn't remember, so I was looking. And uh, Robert Kuhn, the interviewer, said, well, look, um, aren't all of our conscious thoughts products of brain activity anyway? And, and I said, well, of course. But the question is, do those conscious thoughts, which might be identical with brain activity, ever play a role in generating decisions? That's what free will is about. And he asked me to explain. And I explained by talking about how I put together the uh, program of speakers for this conference that I was holding at the time that Robert Kuhn came down to uh, video. And uh, it, turned, it turned into a long explanation, but I had people from all over the world flying in, uh, as far away as Israel, at least. And uh, I was thinking about the Saturday morning talk, and I didn't want anybody who was jet-lagged to give that talk. Uh, I wanted somebody who'd be lively at 9 in the morning. My friend Peter C., who's a neuroscientist, is very lively and very conscientious. And he only had to come from New Hampshire. So I thought, oh, great. You know, I'll, I'll make uh, Peter the first speaker on Saturday after sorting through other options. And I told Robert, I did all of this consciously. I wouldn't know how to do it unconsciously. Uh, and uh, I, I came to a conclusion. And the conclusion was a decision. It was make Peter or assign Peter the 9 o'clock spot Saturday morning. Um, and then I told Robert, and what if you had asked me uh, at the time, hey, exactly when you, did you make your decision? Well, I might be off on that. I might think I made it a little earlier than, than I actually did or a little later than I actually did. And the timing issue really isn't important for free will. What's important is the influence my conscious thinking had on what I decided to do irrespective of the timing like you said and depends on which view you take it is still me the whole thing is me whether it's my brain or whether it's my hand so yes i may be aware of it a little bit later but to say that the decision had come from somewhere else is a totally different track to take so my brain it's for example if you start a car and you start a car and one minute later, the not the ignition, but the wipers come on automatically. It's still the car, unless you then try to break it down as to from the time you start. Because once you start it, you start it. So is it safe or is it even right to think that the difference or the problem here starts the moment you start defining that gap? And then from what perspective is that gap? Because there has to be another inner me to say, I realized my brain sent out a particular signal at that time, if I could, uh, if I had that much of insight into uh, per, per millisecond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So it is you, uh, and sometimes the, the thinking is, is very conscious. And sometimes, you know, you get intentions uh, without much thought at all. Uh, but even in those cases, it's you. So what, what do I mean by that? Well, um, yeah, let's stick with cars. So you drive to work, let's say, on, on the same route every day. So it becomes very automated. And you get to a certain intersection and you make a left turn. And you have good driving habits, so you flip your turn signal before you make the turn. Um, and I doubt that when I do this, I'm even aware of flipping the turn signal much less of an intention to do it. But I think that I did have an intention to do it. 
uh, and of course I flipped the turn signal. Did I flip it freely? Um, maybe so, because maybe uh, I freely, I, I threw a series of free actions, built up this habit, and then maybe acting on the habit counts as free too in a derivative sense. So even behavior like that can be free, I think. Oh, and, and the idea is it doesn't need to be driven by a conscious decision or intention at that moment. Now, currently, our understanding of quantum mechanics tells us that all possibilities are possibilities, however fine they may be. And it is leading us to believe in something that's called a multiverse, where every decision that you make, you keep branching out into other realities. Initially, maybe a few years ago, that sounded very strange to a lot of people. But today, that seems to be the accepted norm. So in every instance that you are, though you are, you could be living in a deterministic world. When you look at, when you step back and look at all of it, then it's totally uh, a non-deterministic or indeterministic. Because as you make those choices, those choices keep happening. So in a sense, that's like the ultimate, that's the ultimate idea of free will that most of us as non-experts have. Uh, from your view, I don't know if you see it that way, but for the common person who experiences it, we like to think that irrespective of the framework and the 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 signals, the decision signals, I still would like to think, and most of us want to think, that I'm going to make this decision to do what I'm going to do one hour from now. And in another world, I did not, I went left. And in another world, I went right. And, you know, I, it just makes me feel that if this was the wrong decision, I'm just happy that it, I made the right decision in another world. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Um, I, you know, I find uh, this aspect of quantum mechanics mind-boggling, <laughs> and I never know what to think about it. But but yeah, let's just play along, and, and let's let's say that there is a multiverse, and at every decision point, uh, things split. And sometimes there are only two ways it can go, but you know sometimes there are ten or twenty different decisions you could have made at that moment. And so there you are in these different worlds, making these different decisions. And when I think about things that way, when that's my hypothesis about things. Um, I feel a bit depressed because I, I think, well, why does it matter so much which decision I made here when it turns out that I made all these other decisions in other worlds? Uh, so I sort of lose track of myself. Mm. Um, yeah, that's interesting because you were speaking earlier as well on the different fields that uh, attack free will from all sides and we spoke about the science of it we spoke about the philosophers and another interesting point that i would want to touch on is the theologians or uh, the theology of it because here we get into uh, very interesting stuff and you get people talking about the divine you get people talking about does god does god have free will because if he is god then he should have all all sets of possibilities and information with him. And if he does not have that, then he has free will, but then he can't be God. <laughs> yeah, I see. Um, you know, some people think God can't have free will because he always knows what it's best to do, and, you know, God's got to do what's best. But um, couldn't it be that there are times when there are different options and Several of them are equally good, so there's no single best. And God gets to pick which one to go for. Um, then it looks like, it, well, it's undetermined which option God goes for. Uh, he goes for it for good reasons and so on. Uh, I mean, he's got as good reasons to do that as the others. So may maybe God uh, can have free will, even if God is perfect. But this is not my field. I've always uh, pretty much steered clear of it. There are people who know a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. I've just been reading some about uh, some of it. And like you said, it's interesting, but it then takes you into different areas, right? We were talking about consciousness because that breaks down again. 
Are we talking about individual consciousness, bits of consciousness, or are we talking about a universal consciousness? Because if you're talking about a universal consciousness where all of us are some part of it, then again, that decision is coming somewhere from you need a metaphysical world or you need you need to step out of this whole physics to then be able to look at it differently. Am I right? Probably. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, I also tend not to think about free will from that perspective either. Huh. I'm striking myself as kind of narrow-minded now. But... No, that, I, I, that's, that's interesting <laughs> because... I was thinking about this a little bit uh, earlier. This was this was maybe a week back, and trying to uh, decide how I wanted to put this together. Because a lot of people listening to us, uh, Al, are students and college students, and it's very important that they get something out of this. Not only from all the great information that you've passed on, but how do they practically use this as they move forward and navigate through life? Because they've got to make decisions, choices about careers, about uh, fields that they have to take and we we want that to be conscious decisions obviously rather than step back and i i think the book that you wrote in 2019 is something that i want to just touch upon here where you uh, manipulated agents i i highly recommend that book to people who are one is trying to understand consciousness but at the same time wanting to study it in a more practical sense because i think through that book what you were trying to tell us is for example, if there is an achiever or somebody has been really good at something, then there should be a way for us to go back and figure out what were those circumstances that led to that particular behavior or success behavior. And if we are able to in some way match that to some extent, then then that definitely is something that you could use that's going to help you in your life starting tomorrow. Yeah, I see. I, I agree. And that was one of the points. Um you know, there is evidence, there's evidence in social psychology that belief in free will is, uh, is a healthy thing. It makes your life go better. And I think a simple way to put it is if you see things as up to you to a significant extent, uh, you're more likely to take seriously the decisions you make and to make good decisions. Whereas if you see yourself mainly as a passive bystander who just goes along with the flow, um, you're less likely to make good decisions and stick with them. So I think belief in free will uh, is important and useful. Um, but I also think that it's true uh, that we do have free will. So I don't say believe it because it's useful. <laughs> Uh, I say believe it because it's true, but it turns out that the belief is useful too. Absolutely. Because of going back to where we started and coming a full circle here, when we spoke about deterministic or libertarian, I think you made it very clear at that point, or did I get it right, I hope, that irrespective, irrespective, you're making a decision in the dark, basically, from the from the moment you make that decision. You do not have, technically, because it's a decision that's going to impact the future, you do not have any extra edge over anybody else if it's the decision that you have to make. Because if people did have that, then that would not be fair as well. Yeah, I see. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I should say I haven't even said what my position on free will is, really, aside from that it exists. So so I, I gave you those two different conceptions of uh, free will at the beginning, those two different sets of sufficient conditions. And my official position is the disjunction of those two things, so or, connect them by an or, to claim that we have free will of the first kind or free will of the second kind, one or the other, is more credible than the claim that there is no free will. And that's my official position. It's a unique uh, position because... Oh, well, almost every philosopher who writes about free will either goes for compatibilism or goes for incompatibilism. And I stay neutral on the compatibilism-incompatibilism debate. And for that reason, I'm in a position to offer this sort of unusual view of free will. And um, I like it, too, because it enables me to develop a positive compatibilist view 
and a positive libertarian view. And so help out both sides uh, in people who believe in free will. There are also free will skeptics, and those are my real philosophical opponents. Mm. That that's a that's a very unique view, like you said yourself, and and yes, we've we've definitely I'll be been at it for some time. I've not realized, but it's just time has flown. And before I, before we let you go, I would if I could ask you, with all that you've been doing and studying and researching over these years, if we would ask you to for a moment speculate on two things. One is the future of this field, and when I say the future of this field, I'm addressing it more to our listeners. Would you be able to give them some of the areas that they should be looking to or you think is going to be cutting edge or somebody who's able to find uh, or an interesting topic that they should be considering moving into and what are your thoughts on 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 the future itself whether it happens or not as far as this particular decision is concerned on free will yeah that's a good question um I actually was invited to write an article on the future of free will, but I, I don't remember what I said in that article. Uh, also, it was one of those volumes that was held up for years. So I was supposed to predict 10 years in the future, and the volume still isn't published yet. And I wrote it, I don't know, six years ago. So All right, nice. I don't know. But um, it seems that there are more skeptics about free will than there used to be. Uh, so I, I think probably skepticism will get more attention than it used to get. Um, people are toying around with the idea now that um, free will and moral responsibility can be pretty seriously separated so that you could be, for example, a compatibilist about moral responsibility and an incompatibilist about uh, free will. Some people think that that's what is called semi-compatibilism. They're wrong about that, but uh, I, I won't go into it. It's technical. So I think we'll probably get more uh, discussions that separate free will from moral responsibility. Um, experimental philosophy of free will and moral responsibility is chugging right along. I think there's going to be more of that. Experimental philosophy, well, the kind that I have in mind, is based on surveys of non-specialists and is uh, devoted to trying to discover how uh, non-specialists understand expressions like free will, moral responsibility, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, I think we'll see more of that too. Um, will we see the day when it's decided by everyone that compatibilism is true or false? No, I don't think that'll ever happen. Um, is this, when you spoke about skepticism, is something that you think is going to be uh, much more debated and people think about it more now? Is it you connected to the rise of science and because we have much more science to prove a lot around us? But uh, I don't know if you, but I just consider that could be double-edged because uh, if science works in a particular area or a particular field which could be functional, that may not necessarily work as far as the mind is concerned and whether there is a mind or no, that's maybe we'll leave that for now. But do you see that as something that we need to be aware of or be, be skeptical about it ourselves? Uh, yeah, I do. Now, some arguments uh, for skepticism about free will are based on science, that's for sure, like the Libet stuff that I talked about. Some arguments for skepticism are purely theoretical. And it's interesting that uh, a skeptic about free will like Dirk Paraboom, who's very influential, um, uses the theoretical arguments for skepticism and not the scientific ones. I think he's persuaded that you know the Libet-style experiments don't show that there's no free will. But what he thinks is that free will depends on something special called agent causation and that uh, there's no evidence of the existence of agent causation. So arguments like that are going to continue to get attention. Agent causation, by the way, is causation of an effect, say a decision or an intention or an action, by an agent 
as a whole, where the agent isn't reducible to uh, states and events, and the agent causation isn't reducible to causation by states and events. But uh, that's, that's a topic probably it's better not to go into at the end of a long interview. Yeah, um, that, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we tend to think of causation as by events, like lightnings striking a tree, which is an event, causes the tree to fall over and cr crush my fence, which is another event. Um, and agent causation isn't like that. It's not causation by events. It's causation by whole human beings. Uh, I actually think that agent causation doesn't help with free will, <laughs> but okay. uh, I, I shouldn't try to explain why. That would take me 20 minutes. The moment you started with causation, I, I was just thinking to myself, I said, this is a podcast episode on its own. And Al, You've been absolutely amazing. I want to really thank you. I just hope we can come back and do the causation part again, but I'm just trying to push my luck here. But we really enjoyed this, Al, and I just, just hope that you don't regret uh, having to spend your time with us. Oh, no, I enjoyed it. It was fun. So thanks a lot, uh, Al, again, and hopefully somewhere in the future we can do this again. Okay, sounds good. इस हब हॉपर ओरिजिनल को सुनने के लिए आपका शुक्रिया अगर आप भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करना चाहते हैं तो हब हॉपर स्टूडियो वेबसाइट पे रजिस्टर करें और एक मिनट के अंदर अंदर अपना खुद का पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करें यही नहीं स्टूडियो देता है आपको पूरी आजादी कहीं भी कभी भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करने की सिर्फ तीन आसान स्टेप्स में तो साथ में अपना पॉडकास्ट शुरू करने के लिए तैयार जस्ट हॉप ऑन हब हॉपर सिंपली कॉन्टेंट